Section 10 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Cathy Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 28. Francis I and Charles V, Part 10. The two armies were of pretty equal strength. They had each from twenty to five and twenty thousand infantry, French, Germans, Spaniards, Lanxnecks, and Swiss. Francis I had the advantage in artillery and in heavy cavalry, called at that time the gendarmerie, that is to say, the corps of men-at-arms in heavy armor with their servants. But his troops were inferior in effectives to the imperialists, and Charles V's two generals, Bourbon and Pascara, were, as men of war, far superior to Francis I and his favorite Bonivet. In the night between the 23rd and 24th of February, they opened a breach of forty or fifty fathoms in the wall around the park of Mirabello, where the French camp was situated. A corps immediately passed through it, marching on Pavia to reinforce the garrison, and the main body of the imperial army entered the park to offer the French battle on that ground. The king at once set his army in motion, and his well-posted artillery mowed down the corps of Germans and Spaniards who had entered the park. Quote, you could see nothing, says a witness of the battle, but heads and arms flying about. The action seemed to be going ill for the imperialists. Pascara urged the Duke of Bourbon and Lenoy, the viceroy of Naples, to make haste and come up. Lenoy made the sign of the cross and said to his men, quote, There is no hope but in God. Follow me and do every one as I do. Francis I, on his side, advanced with the pick of his men at arms, burst on the advance guard of the army, broke it, killed with his own hand the Marquis of Civita San Angelo, and dispersed the various corps he found in his way. In the confidence of his joy he thought the victory decided, and turning to Marshal de Foix, who was with him, quote, Monsieur de Lasquin, said he, now am I fain to call myself Duke of Milan, end quote. But Bourbon and Pascara were not the men to accept a defeat so soon. They united all their forces, and resumed the offensive at all points. The French batteries, masked by an ill-considered movement on the part of their own troops, who threw themselves between them and the enemy, lost all serviceability, and Pascara launched upon the French gendarmerie fifteen hundred Basque arquissiers, whom he had exercised and drilled to penetrate into the midst of the horses, shoot both horses and riders, and fall back rapidly after having discharged their pieces. Being attacked by the German lanxnecks of Bourbon and Freundsberg, the Swiss in the French service did not maintain their renown, and began to give way. Quote, "'My God, what is all this?' cried Francis I, seeing them waver, and he dashed towards them to lead them back into action. But neither his efforts, nor those of John of Diesbach, or the Lord of Florange, who were their commanders, were attended with success.' the king was only the more eager for the fray and rallying around him all those of his men-at-arms who would neither recoil nor surrender he charged the imperialists furiously throwing himself into the thickest of the melee and seeking in excess of peril some chance of victory but pascara though wounded in three places was none the less stubbornly fighting on and antony de leva governor of pavia came within the greater part of the garrison to his aid at this very moment francis i heard that the first prince of the blood, his brother-in-law the Duke of Alençon, who commanded the rear-guard, had precipitately left the field of battle. The oldest and most glorious warriors of France, La Tremeuil, Marshal of Chabannes, Marshal de Foix, the Grand Equerry of San Severino, the Duke of Suffolk, Francis of Lorraine, Chaumont, Bussy d'Amboise, and Francis de Durat fell here and there mortally wounded. 
At this sight, Admiral Bonnivet in despair exclaimed, quote, I can never survive this fearful havoc, end quote and raising the visor of his helmet he rushed to meet the shots which were aimed at him and in his turn fell beside his comrades in arms bourbon had expressly charged his men to search everywhere in the melee for the admiral and bring him in a prisoner when as he passed along that part of the battlefield he recognized the corpse quote, ah wretch he cried as he moved away it is thou who hast caused the ruin of france and of me End quote. Amidst these dead and dying, Francis still fought on. Wounded as he was in the face, the arms, and the legs, he struck right and left with his huge sword, and cut down the nearest of his assailants. But his horse, mortally wounded, dragged him down as it fell. He was up again in an instant, and standing beside his horse, he laid low two more Spaniards who were pressing him closely. The ruck of the soldiers crowded about him. They did not know him, but his stature, his strength, his bravery, his coat of mail studded with golden lilies, and his helmet overshadowed by a thick plume of feathers, pointed him out to all as the finest capture to make. His danger was increasing every minute, when one of Bourbon's most intimate confidants, the lord of Pontparin, who in 1523 had accompanied the constable in his flight through France, came up at this critical moment, recognized the king, and beating off the soldiers with his sword, ranged himself at the king's side, represented to him the necessity of yielding, and pressed him to surrender to the Duke of Bourbon, who was not far off. Quote, no, said the king, rather die than pledge my faith to a traitor. Where is the viceroy of Naples? End quote. It took some time to find Lanoy, but at last he arrived and put one knee on the ground before Francis I, who handed his sword to him. Lenoy took it with marks of the most profound respect, and immediately gave him another. The battle was over, and Francis I was Charles V's prisoner. He had shown himself an imprudent and unskilful general, but at the same time a hero. His conquerors, both officers and privates, could not help, whilst they secured his person, showing their admiration for him. When he sat down to table, after having had his wounds, which were slight, attended to, Bourbon approached him respectfully and presented him with a dinner-napkin, and the king took it without embarrassment and with frigid and curt politeness. He next day granted him an interview, at which an accommodation took place with due formalities on both sides, but nothing more. All the king's regard was for the Marquis of Pescara, who came to see him in a simple suit of black, in order, as it were, to share his distress. Quote, he was a perfect gentleman, said Francis I, both in peace and in war. He heaped upon him marks of esteem and almost of confidence. Quote, How do you think, he asked, the emperor will behave to me? Quote, I think, replied Pescara, I can answer for the emperor's moderation. I am sure that he will make a generous use of his victory. If, however, he were capable of forgetting what is due to your rank, your merits, and your misfortunes, I would never cease to remind him of it, and I would lose what little claim upon him my services may have given me, or you should be satisfied with his behavior. The king embraced him warmly. He asked to be excused from entering Pavia, that he might not be a gazing stock in a town that he had so nearly taken. He was, accordingly, conducted to Pizzichitone, a little fortress between Milan and Cremona. He wrote thence two letters, one to his mother the regent, and the other to Charles V, which are here given word for word, because they so well depict his character and the state of his mind in his hour of calamity. 1. Quote, to the regent of France, Madame, that you may know how stands the rest of my misfortune, there is nothing in the world left to me but honour and my life, which is safe. 
and in order that in your adversity this news might bring you some little comfort, I prayed for permission to write you this letter, which was readily granted me, entreating you in the exercise of your accustomed prudence to be pleased not to do anything rash, for I have hope, after all, that God will not forsake me, commending to you my children, your grandchildren, and entreating you to give the bearer a free passage, going and returning to Spain, for he is going to the emperor to learn how it is his pleasure that I should be treated." End quote. Two. Quote, to the Emperor Charles V. If liberty had been sooner granted me by my cousin the Viceroy, I should not have delayed so long to do my duty towards you, according as the time and the circumstances in which I am placed require, having no other comfort under my misfortune than a reliance on your goodness, which, if it so please, shall employ the results of victory with honourableness towards me having steadfast hope that your virtue would not willingly constrain me to anything that was not honourable entreating you to consult your own heart as to what you shall be pleased to do with me feeling sure that the will of a prince such as you are cannot be coupled with aught but honour and magnanimity wherefore if it please you to have so much honourable pity as to answer for the safety which a captive king of france deserves to find whom there is a desire to render friendly and not desperate, you may be sure of obtaining an acquisition instead of a useless prisoner, and of making a king of France your slave for ever. The former of these two letters has had its native hue somewhat altered in the majority of histories, in which it has been compressed into those eloquent words, quote, All is lost save honour. The second needs no comment to make apparent what it lacks of kingly pride and personal dignity beneath the warrior's heroism there was in the qualities of francis i more of what is outwardly brilliant and winning than of real strength and solidity but the warrior's heroism in conjunction with what is outwardly brilliant and winning in the man exercises a great influence over people the viceroy of naples perceived and grew anxious at the popularity of which francis i was the object at pizzichitone the lanxnecks took an open interest in him and his fortunes the italians fixed their eyes on him and Bourbon, being reconciled to him, might meditate carrying him off. Lannoy resolved to send him to Naples, where there would be more certainty of guarding him securely. Francis made no objection to this design. On the 12th of May, 1525, he wrote to his mother, quote, Madame, the bearer has assured me that he will bring you this letter safely, and as I have but little time, I will tell you nothing more than I shall be off to Naples on Monday, and so keep a lookout at sea, for we shall have only fourteen galleys to take us, and eighteen hundred Spaniards to man them. But those will be all their arquebusiers. Above all, haste, for if that is made, I am in hopes that you may soon see your most humble and most obedient son. There was no opportunity for even attempting to carry off the king as he went by sea to Naples. Instead of taking him to Naples, Lannoy transported him straight to Spain, with the full assent of the king and the regent themselves, for it was in French galleys manned by Spanish troops that the voyage was made. Instead of awaiting the result of such doubtful chances of deliverance as might occur in Italy, Francis I, his mother, and his sister Margaret, entertained the idea that what was of the utmost importance for him was to confer and treat in person with Charles V, which could not be done save in Spain itself. In vain did Bourbon and Pascara, whose whole influence and ambitious hopes lay in Italy, and who, on that stage, regarded Francis I as their own prisoner rather than Charles V's, exert themselves to combat this proposal. The Viceroy of Naples, in concert no doubt with Charles V himself, as well as with Francis I and his mother, took no heed of their opposition, and Francis I, disembarking at the end of June at Barcelona first, and then at Valencia, sent on the 2nd of July to Charles V, 
the Duke de Montmorency, with orders to say that he had desired to approach the Emperor, quote, not only to obtain peace and deliverance in his own person, but also to establish and confirm Italy in the state and fact of devotion to the Emperor, before that the potentates and lords of Italy should have leisure to rally together in opposition, end quote. The regent, his mother, and his sister Margaret congratulated him heartily on his arrival in Spain, and Charles V himself wrote to him, quote, it was a pleasure to me to hear of your arrival over here, because that just now it will be the cause of a happy general peace for the great good of Christendom, which is what I most desire. It is difficult to understand how Francis I and Charles V could rely upon personal interviews and negotiations for putting an end to their contentions and establishing a general peace. Each knew the other's pretensions, and they knew how little disposed they were, either of them, to abandon them. On the 28th of March, 1525, a month after the Battle of Pavia, Charles V had given his ambassadors instructions as to treating for the ransom and liberation of the King of France. His chief requirements were that Francis I should renounce all attempts at conquest in Italy, that he should give up the suzerainty of the countships of Flanders and Artois, that he should surrender to Charles V the Duchy of Burgundy with all its dependencies, as derived from Mary of Burgundy, daughter of the last duke, Charles the Rash, and that the Duke of Bourbon should be reinstated in possession of all his domains, with the addition thereto of Provence and Dauphiny, which should form an independent state, and lastly, that France should pay England all the sums of money which Austria owed her. Francis I, on hearing at Pizzighitone these proposals read out, suddenly drew his sword as if to stab himself, saying, quote, It were better for a king to end thus. End quote. His custodian, Alençon, seized his arm, whilst recalling him to his senses. Francis recovered calmness, but without changing his resolution. He would rather, he said, bury himself in a prison forever than subscribe to conditions destructive of his kingdom, and such as the States-General of France would never accept. When Francis I was removed to Spain, he had made only secondary concessions as to these requirements of Charles V, and Charles V had not abandoned any one of his original requirements. Marshal de Montmorency, when sent by the king to the emperor on the 2nd of July, 1525, did not enter at all into the actual kernel of the negotiation. After some conventional protestations of a pacific kind, he confined himself to demanding, quote, a safe conduct for Madame Marguerite of France, the king's only sister, Duchess of Alençon and Berry, who would bring with her such and so full powers of treating for peace, the liberation of the king, and friendly alliance to secure the said peace, that the emperor would clearly see that the king's intentions were pure and genuine, and that he would be glad to conclude and decide in a month what might otherwise drag on for a long while to the great detriment of their subjects. The marshal was at the same time to propose the conclusion of a truce during the course of the negotiations. Amongst the letters at that time addressed to Francis I, a prisoner of war, is the following, dated March 1525, when he was still in Italy, quote, My lord, the joy we are still feeling at the kind letters which you were pleased to write yesterday to me and to your mother, makes us so happy with the assurance of your health, on which our life depends, that it seems to me that we ought to think of nothing but of praising God, and desiring a continuance of your good news, which is the best meat we can have to live on. And inasmuch as the Creator hath given us grace that our Trinity should be always united, the other two do entreat you that this letter, presented to you who are the third, may be accepted with the same affection with which it is cordially offered you by your most humble and most obedient servants, your mother and sister, Louise, Marguerite, end quote. 
this close and tender union of the three continued through all separations and all trials the confidence of the captive king was responsive to the devotion of his mother the regent and of his sister who had become his negotiatrix when the news came of the king's captivity the regency threatened for a moment to become difficult and stormy all the ambition and the hatred that lay dormant in the court awoke an attempt was made to excite in the duke of vendome the head of the younger branch of the house of bourbon a desire to take the regent's place the parliament of paris attacked the chancellor duprat whom they hated not without cause but the duke of vendome was proof against the attempts which were made upon him and frankly supported the regent who made him the chief of her council and the regent supported the chancellor she displayed in these court contentions an ability partaking both of firmness and pliancy the difficulties of foreign policy found her equally active and prudent the greatest peril which france could at that time incur arose from the maintenance of the union between the king of england and charles v at the first news of the battle of pavia henry the eighth dreamed for a moment of the partition of france between charles and himself with the crown of france for his own share demonstrations of joy took place at the court of london and attempts were made to levy without the concurrence of parliament imposts capable of sufficing for such an enterprise but the english nation felt no inclination to put up with this burden and the king's arbitrary power in order to begin over again the hundred years war the primate warham archbishop of canterbury wrote to cardinal wolseley quote, it is reported to me that when the people had orders to make bonfires for the capture of the king of france others many folks said that it was more reason for weeping than for rejoicing others openly expressed their desire that the king of france might be set at liberty that a happy peace might be concluded and that the king might not attempt to conquer france again a conquest more burdensome than profitable and more difficult to keep than to make wolseley himself was cooled towards charles v who instead of writing to him as of old and signing with his own hand quote, your son and cousin end quote, now merely put his name charles the regent louise of savoy profited ably by these feelings and circumstances in england a negotiation was opened between the two courts henry the eighth gained by it two millions of crowns payable by annual instalments of fifty thousand crowns each and wolseley received a pension of a hundred thousand crowns at first a truce for four months and then an alliance offensive and defensive were concluded on the thirtieth of august fifteen twenty five between france and england and the regent louise of savoy had no longer to trouble herself about anything except the captivity of the king her son and the departure of her daughter margaret to go and negotiate for the liberation of the prisoner End of section ten.